All right, Revelation chapter 16. I'm going to read to you verses 10 through 16 because that's the section we're going to spend a lot of time on tonight, breaking down. Um, but I'm going to tell you ahead of time, as soon as I finish reading it, we're going to go somewhere else. All right? So Revelation 16, starting in verse 10, it says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief." Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, we're going to pick back up where we left off in Revelation 16 in just a bit. But there are a couple more things that I want to bring out from the passages we studied last week that I want to just talk about before we actually get back to Revelation 16. If you remember last time we met, uh, we brought out the fact that in Revelation chapter 11, verse 17, go ahead and look there again. In Revelation 11, verse 17, it says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And we talked about the fact that they don't describe Jesus as the one who was and is and is to come. Why is that? Because he's beginning to reign. I want you to see that in the pouring out of the bowls, in the blowing of the trumpets, actually, I think all the way back to the opening of the seals. Who's the one that's doing all this? It's Jesus. Let me just use Leonard as an illustration. Let's say Leonard's sitting in my chair. All right. That's my chair. But Leonard took it. In my removing Leonard from the chair, I've begun to reign. I don't reign once I sit down back in my chair. In my exercising my authority and power to get you out of my chair, I've already begun to reign. Do you understand? I've had this misconcept in my mind over the years that when Jesus begins to reign, once he comes back to the earth, he comes back, he defeats his enemies, and then he begins to reign. But scripturally, he begins to reign in what he's doing during the tribulation period. He's exercising his authority. Actually, scripturally, he began to reign when? When he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Because at that point, Satan was defeated. And doesn't Jesus say at that point in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And we see in the Hebrews chapter 2 that everything was laid to, at the feet of Jesus and subject to him. Now the Hebrew writer goes on and says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But it is. It's now during this tribulation period, and especially at the end, it becomes obvious that he has begun to reign. Look at Revelation chapter 16, verse 5. I didn't even notice this last week, but it says it again. Revelation 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. Do you see it? It's missing again. Why doesn't it say is to come? Because he has begun to reign in the end of the tribulation period, he's no longer is to come. His coming is kind of tied with what he's doing right then, then and there. All right, now what I want to do, though, is I want to point out a couple of things real quick. Go back to Revelation chapter 11. 
Look at verse 19, and then we're going to look at Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 and following. I'm going to point out two things that we didn't even talk about the last time we were together. I'm just going to point them out to you so that they're in your mind throughout the study. And we're going to close with these two sections. All right. Revelation 11, verse 19, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, in the midst of all this, God opens up the temple enough, the, whole, the real temple, not made by human hands, the one where God dwells. And he lets John see in it. And what is he shown? The Ark of the Covenant. Now, keep in mind, this isn't the one that was on the earth. This is not one made by human hands. This is the actual Ark that the one on earth was a copy of. But John is seen. He's, the temple's open. He's allowed to see in it. And he's seen, he sees the Ark. He's shown the Ark. We're going to deal later, with, later tonight with why. Go to Revelation chapter 15 and look at verse 5. After this, I looked in the sanctuary. The tent of witness in heaven was opened. Again, he's allowed to peek into the temple where God dwells. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now keep this in mind as well. As this is going on, John's seen, he's shown the ark inside the temple. Then he's allowed to look in again. And these seven angels that are going to be pouring out the seven last plagues and the bowls of God's wrath come out of the temple. And once they come out of the temple and begin to pour these bowls of God's wrath, the temple of God, remember we're allowed because of Jesus to go right into the throne of God. It's now filled with smoke where nobody can go in. We're going to be dealing with that tonight as we close. So keep those in your mind. And also look at Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18. Look at the reaction of the nations when Jesus begins to reign here at the very, very end of the tribulation period. The nations raged. But your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is a different reaction, folks than the reaction of the nations prior in Revelation 6. Go, go to Revelation chapter 6 and look at verses 15 through 17. Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the day of the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So the reaction prior to earlier in the tribulation, which we've already seen, when God begins to open some of the first seals and bring his judgments on the earth to get their attention, their reaction is they say to the mountains, hide us from him. But now at the end, when he's doing what he's doing, what is the reaction in Revelation 11:10 of the nations when he does this? They're enraged. By the way, for those of you that have spent some time getting his word in your heart, does that bring anything to your mind? Psalm 2. Go with me to Psalm 2, and you're going to see something that, again, God is, I'm amazed at how much I'm learning in my study because I've taught Revelation, I don't know, three or four times throughout the 30 plus years that I've been preaching the Word of God. And actually in 2009, I taught 32 hours on the book of Revelation. And that's on my website as well. But I'll be honest with you, I'm seeing more stuff now 
than I did six years ago. And I'm blown away by how much stuff that I never saw the first time through. But go to Psalm chapter 2. And you're going to see this is a prophecy about the end times. Why do the nations what? Rage. And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Look closely. Against, against who? Against the Lord and his anointed. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You're my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, stick with me here. When the nations rage, as we just saw in Revelation 18, sorry, 11, 18 and Psalm 2. When they all gather, as we saw, as we're going to look at in a little bit more detail, the the. the Dragon, the false prophet, and the Antichrist all have demons come out of their mouth to go gather all the kings of the whole world to that battle outside of Jerusalem in the Valley of Armageddon. When they all gather, are they coming against Israel? See, for years I kind of thought they were coming against Israel. And in a sense they are, and I'm going to show you some passages that lean in that direction. But really, according to the scriptures, who are they really gathering to fight against? Jesus himself. Folks, at this point, Satan knows scripture. At this point in history that's going to be happening, Satan knows what's about to happen. He knows Jesus is coming back. And in his last ditch effort, remember, he's been cast out of the presence of God, which he is still allowed to be there now. He's been cast at that point down to the earth. He knows that his time is short. He's actually gathering all of his demonic forces. He's gathering all of the humans on the earth and the generals and their armies. And they are gathering them together to fight against Jesus when he comes back. Folks, that's why what's going on in Israel is so important. Because Satan knows if I can get those people out of that land, if I can get those people totally removed, if I can give that to other nations, if I can give that to everybody else, the prophecies of Jesus that he was going to come back and set up his kingdom there can't be fulfilled. He can't stop him from dying on a cross. That's already happened. He can't stop him from rising from the dead. That's already happened. But maybe he can stop him. That's how foolish Satan is. Maybe he can stop him from coming back to that land and to those people. And that's why Israel is so hated by all the nations. And sadly, by many of our Christian denominations today. So, let me show you a couple other things that I hadn't really ever seen before. <clears throat> Go to Matthew 24. We know that Jesus told the Jews to run into the wilderness when they see the abomination of desolation in the temple. And I want to remind you of that. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22. Jesus is speaking to the nation of Israel. And he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. 
And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So we know, we've seen this. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which we know from Daniel 9 is when the Antichrist, and from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when the Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple, declares himself to be God, people tried to say, well, Jim, that was already fulfilled when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes set up a, a, an, an image of Zeus and put his own face on it there in the, in the, in the temple back the time of the Maccabean revolt. Hang on for a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did that happen before Jesus said this or after Jesus said this? That was prior to what Jesus said. So if Jesus said, when you see this as its future, Antiochus Epiphanes can't be the fulfillment of it. This is something still yet future. But he said that they're to run into the wilderness. And we already saw in Revelation chapter 12 that, remember, the woman, Israel, gives birth to the male child who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we just saw that in Psalm 2. And, and Satan, the dragon went after that child, wasn't able to get him. He was taken up to heaven. So then the dragon was enraged and went after the woman, Israel. And remember, she was protected out in the wilderness for three and a half years. I've already touched on it. We'll deal with it in a lot more detail when we get to chapter 19 of Revelation. They're going to be in the area of Basra, which is what the Bible has actually told us, which is in Edom, southeast of Jerusalem. But I have for years assumed that because Jesus said to them, get out of Jerusalem, get out of Judea, run into the wilderness, and that they were going to be protected, I knew that there were going to be some Jews that were killed in this process, I assumed that the whole nation of Israel was no longer going to be in Jerusalem and in, in Israel, but they're all going to be in the wilderness. And guess what? That's not the case. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. And I had a lady come to me last night afterwards and say, Jim, when you take them the first time to Zechariah 14, Tell them to put a bookmark in it because you went back to it so many times. We would have been really nice to know you're coming back to it so many times. I'm going to come back to this passage a lot. Go to Zechariah 14 and put a bookmark there because you'll see it again a few more times tonight. Actually, a whole lot of it in this area. In Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle... And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Some of your translations say captivity. It's a horrible translation of the word. They're not going to go into captivity. They're just going to go out in that area that they're going to be protected. All right, half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on, the, on a day of battle. Okay, stop there. Is this not a prophecy about the Battle of Armageddon? So how many Jews are going to be killed? Well, actually, it doesn't say that any are going to be killed here, but it says how many are going to stay in the city and how many are going to go out into exile? Half and half. So it says half will stay in the city, half will run into exile. But don't do your math yet, because there's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13 that you need to know about as well. Look at verses 8 and 9. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver, 
and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So now we see that when this attack comes on Israel, which begins at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist declares himself to be God, and the nations begin to gather to come against Israel, half of the Jews that are left will go out into exile. Half will stay in the city. Two-thirds, though, of the nation of Israel are going to be killed. Only one-third is even going to be left through this process. So actually, if you do the math, the group of Israel, the number of Israel that's going to be protected in the wilderness is one-sixth of the nation. Half of one-third. So for years, people have said, well, you, you prophesy people, how are they going to have the nation of Israel? You say it's probably going to be over there in Petra and all that area there. How are they all going to fit? Well, if we read our Bibles, we'd realize two-thirds of the nation of Israel are going to be killed in this attack. One-third will be spared. God's going to put them through the refining process. Half of that one-third will still be in the area of Jerusalem. And you'll see this in further prophecies later on, that when Jesus comes back, there will be Jews in Jerusalem already. And one half of the one third will actually be out in the area of Edom. Isn't that interesting? I'd never seen that before. It's been there all along. I'd never seen it. Again, letting, the more we read it, the more we'll start to realize, man, there's a lot more here. And I can't wait to show you tonight how much stuff is going to parallel with that section I already read to you and what we're going to look at a little bit later on the seventh bowl You'd be amazed how many scriptures all throughout the Bible have already said everything we're about to look at in Revelation 16, 10 through following. All right. Let me say one more thing about this, and then we'll get back to Revelation chapter 16. Go to Isaiah 26, 20 through 21. Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. Come, my people, this is talking to the nation of Israel, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. By the way, has anybody thought about that in parallel with what we've been reading in Revelation in the bowls, the earth will disclose the blood shed on it. What happens to the rivers? What happens to the oceans? They turn to blood. What if a part of what happens is all the blood that's been shed all over the years just comes back? Know what the prophecy saying? Folks, look at what it says, though, to the nation of Israel. Come, my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. Because the Lord's coming to judge the whole world. It's like the Passover. At the same time, they're going to be protected. Some are going to be protected in Jerusalem. Some are going to be, half of them are going to be in Basra, which we'll deal with when we get to chapter 19. But all this stuff has been here all along. Can't wait to get to chapter 19, but we won't do that for a few weeks. So go back to Revelation 16. Revelation 16, we see in the fifth bowl in verse 10 that the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. 
People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores, and they didn't repent of their deeds. Remember, the, the pain and the, sore, the sores came with the first bowl. These are all happening right on top of each other. Uh, they're kind of in succession, but kind of overlapping. And actually, as you remember from earlier, in the days of the seventh trumpet to be blown, I think that all these bowls of God's wrath are going to be poured out in just a span of just a few days. All this stuff. And as I touched on before, and we will deal with next week in great detail, I'm going to show you that this throne of the beast and his kingdom is the city of Babylon and actually the globe because it'll be all under his power. But it'll be definitely centered in Babylon. I'm actually going to bring for you tomorrow, not tomorrow, next week, the, uh, a handout. I'm going to give you so many scriptures next week. You say, Jim, you already give us a lot. I'm going to give you more, so many more next week that actually I'm going to already have a printed out handout for you that will help you a lot. Because we're going to look at a lot of prophecies from the Old Testament that talk about the future destruction of Babylon and how these prophecies could not yet have been fulfilled because they're so clearly haven't happened. Once you see that, you'll realize that Babylon itself is going to be the headquarters to the Antichrist kingdom. We touched on that a little bit last week. We'll deal with that next week in great detail as we take a look at Revelation 17 and 18 and the destruction of Babylon. And I just want to just prep you for it, folks. Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 is not the Catholic Church. Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 is not America. Babylon's Babylon. And I'm going to show you that we'll spend our whole time next week just dealing with the future destruction of the city of Babylon. The whole study will just be on that. And I'll have a handout for you that will help you in that. So when you see here, the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. That's all we're going to talk about tonight because we're going to spend all next week on that. All right. Now, look at how the dragon, the Antichrist and the false prophet have unclean spirits come out of their mouths to gather the kings of the whole world to come to the valley of Armageddon to gather for battle. All right? We see that there. Now, even though it's demons speaking through them, don't miss this. That even though Satan thinks he's doing this, it's Jesus who is actually in power, and it's he who's begun to reign. And I wanted to show you from Scripture that even though the demons are the ones coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and the false prophet, and they're calling all the kings of the whole world to come gather for battle against Jesus at Jerusalem, it's not them bringing them. I'm going to show you from Scripture, it's God bringing them to this battle. First off, who's opening the seventh seal? Jesus is. These seven bowls of God's wrath were carried by seven angels who came from where? From God's temple. And remember, we see here, and when the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the river Euphrates, its water was dried up, and then this all happened tied to the pouring out of the bowl number six. Where did the bowl number six come from? From God's temple. Who's doing this? God is, and the Scripture has been saying this all along. And folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but all throughout Scripture the Bible shows that God uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. Satan may think he's doing it, but he's on a leash, and God uses his wickedness, his evil, for his purposes. If you were to go back and look at Genesis 50, you know, when, when, when Joseph meets back up with his brothers, and then, of course, his father dies, and his brothers are all afraid. Oh, no, now that our father's dead, Joseph's going to really get us back for what we did. And they came, and they said, please, please, please. And he, he, goes, he started to weep. He said, guys, am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
In other words, you thought you were doing it. Satan thought he was doing it. But actually, God was doing it. Oh, Satan will be held accountable for everything he did. And he'll be judged for what he did. Folks, I, I could show you passage upon passage that shows that God will use a wicked nation to bring judgment on a righteous nation because of their wickedness. But then he goes right afterwards and says, oh, and by the way, then I'm going to punish that wicked nation for what they did. Go with me to Joel chapter 3. I want you to see this. Let me ask you a couple of questions as you're turning to Joel 3. Has God blessed America over the years? Without question. Does he have every right to wipe us out? He does. Go to Joel chapter 3. Look at verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, who's going to gather the nations? God says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, that's another name for the Valley of Armageddon, Battle of Armageddon or the Valley of Megiddo. You'll see that again later on. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Jump down to verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For I, there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Does that sound familiar? You're going to see later on in the further prophecy, this isn't just what we were talking about when we read earlier in Revelation that the sun became black and the moon turned to red. Remember, for the moon to be able to be seen and to be seen as red, the sun still exists. At this point, no more sun, no more moon, no more stars. You're going to see prophecy that talks about that. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. Keep that in mind. You'll see this later on. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to who? His people. Who? A stronghold to the people of Israel. Folks, let me say this again and again and again. We Gentiles have been grafted in by the grace of God for a period to be used to make Israel jealous. We're not really the big key players in the end times. I'm going to show you later on tonight that Jesus' teaching was for the Jews only. Paul was the ambassador to who? To the Gentiles. 
And for the church for too long has read Old Testament prophecies that are dealing with Israel and New Testament prophecies from Jesus' mouth that were dealing with Israel and tried to read ourselves into it. Oh, thank God we're grafted in. Don't hear me say for a second that we don't have to read the Old Testament or we don't have to read the teachings of Jesus because they're not for us. Oh, no, there's truth that can be gleaned. We can learn about who God is. We can see his heart. We can believe his promises because we've been grafted in and given the promises as well. But don't think for a second that all this stuff at the end and try to read yourself in is about us it's not it's about Israel and what God's going to do for his glory and the scripture has been saying it all along and the sooner we in the church believe that God really does mean what he says and we stop trying to well I think this symbolizes that and I think this represents that folks when we head down that road in interpreting prophecy everybody gets to guess where are you going to end up when everybody starts to guess at what they think it means confusion and a mess but if you'll take him at his word, all the prophecies that have ever been fulfilled that we know about were fulfilled literally. So will these to come. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. Let me have you read the exact same three verses again with me, but now read it in this context. Look closely at Zechariah 14 verses 1, 2, and 3. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. Again, who's God talking to? Israel. When's it going to be divided in their midst? Remember, when the Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple, when the nations come after him to begin their attack and they're plundered, women are raped, two thirds are killed, one third will, will, be, will be spared, half of that third in the desert, half of that third in Jerusalem. For who is going to gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle? God says, I'll gather the nations to, against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and so on. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 3. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Now, I'm not going to read any further because we're going to come back to this section of prophecy when we deal with Revelation 19 and what happens at the return of Jesus in the Battle of Armageddon when we study it. But let me just give you a little commercial for that. If you were to go back and read, and I want you to do it, and you go back and read Ezekiel 38 and 39... You're going to see the battle of Gog and Magog there. And for years, prophecy people have been saying that the battle of Gog and Magog was going to happen prior to the tribulation period. The reason they said that, and I'm going to say it nicely, was because they used lazy exegesis. Because in the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, when, God, when this Gog is brought down from the north, and oh, by the way, you'll go back and read it and you'll see, God says, I am going to put hooks in the jaws of Gog and his people, and I'm going to bring them down on, against Israel. And as you know, in that prophecy, as they come against Israel, God comes and does something that just brings so much glory to himself by defeating them that Israel, listen closely, believes in the Lord from that day forward. As we get to Revelation 19, I'm going to show you that the battle of Gog and Magog personally, I think, begins at the midpoint of the tribulation when God brothers the nations to come against Israel. 
They're going to go through a time of purifying and process. But as they continue to gather at the end of that three and second half of the tribulation, that three and a half years, all the nations will have gathered at that point. And Jesus come back and, comes back and wipes them out. The Bible says in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that the people will be gathering all the weapons of warfare for seven years. All the stuff that's left because God defeats them, he's gonna, they're going to be gathering for seven years. So people just assume that that means that has to happen prior to the tribulation because he used the seven-year thing. Let me ask you a question. According to what we've already seen from the Bible about the prophecy about the seven-year tribulation period, are the Jews going to be gathering anything in the second half? So it can't be that that means it's prior to the tribulation. I'm actually going to show you when you see the bird feast prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39, when God calls all the birds to gather on the feast and feast themselves on the blood and the flesh of kings and generals and armies, and you parallel it word for word with the same thing in Revelation 19 when he comes back and defeats his enemies, you're going to see the bird feast in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is identical with the one in Revelation 19 at the return of Jesus Christ. And as you know, that is when, from that day forward, the nation of Israel will believe in the Lord from there on out. Gog and Magog, I believe, begins as God begins to draw them at the midpoint of the tribulation to come, when the nation of Israel has to be going through this time of purification at the end. But it culminates at the Battle of Armageddon. And I will show you when we get to Revelation 19 and that when we read Ezekiel 38 and 39 then, it's so clear, that's the Battle of Armageddon. Gog and Magog is the Battle of Armageddon. But keep in mind, you'll see it then. God says, I'm going to be the one that puts the hooks in the jaws of Gog, which I think is Russia. And I'm going to gather not only him, but all the people with him and bring them against Israel. So yes, we read in Revelation 16 that out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the Antichrist and out of the mouth of the false prophet, these demonic spirits went out and gathered the nations. But who's actually doing it? God is. Let me say this to you now. I want as us as Christians to take some of these truths to heart today. Let his word reach your heart today. Are things a little bit wacky in our world? Or would we not even say, without even getting into it too much, that this is probably one of the most bizarre election processes we've ever seen in our life? And we really don't even know how it's all even going to play out. And to be honest with you, nobody's really excited about anything. God's in control. It may look like man is in control. It may look like Satan is in control. Oh, he's already begun to reign. He'll become real clear at this point of the tribulation period, but he's in full control and authority. All authority has been given to Jesus. Folks, you are not randomly going through time and space. Just rest in that. Oh, pray like we're supposed to pray. Vote like we're supposed to vote but leave the results to God. I go a little bit further, but I feel like God wants me to stop because there's more that we have to get into. Go to Revelation 16 and look at verses 17 through 21. Revelation 16, verses 17 through 21. The seventh angel now pours out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Uh, I think that's pretty clear who's saying that one. God himself. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, great earthquakes, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake 
the great city, which is Jerusalem, I'm going to show you that in a bit, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered who? <laughs> Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So here in the last bowl that's being poured out, it's just poured into the air, and an earthquake is going to happen on the earth that is so great that all of the nations of the earth are going to be leveled. There aren't going to be any more islands. They're going to be gone. Every mountain on the earth is going to have what happened to them? Flattened. Folks, that's an earthquake. But as you're about to see, even though God is leveling the rest of the globe, Jerusalem will be affected differently by this earthquake, and Jerusalem will be improved in the process. You're going to see that as I show you from other prophecies. But let me just bring you back in your minds to Revelation chapter 6. Remember, you don't have to turn there. Remember Revelation 6 verses 15 and 16 where earlier in the tribulation period when God began to show some of his wrath and he was getting the nation's attention, trying to give them another opportunity for salvation, and they called to what? To hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. They called to the mountains, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. God says, where are you going to hide now? Because there are no more mountains. There are no more mountains. It says Jerusalem is going to be split into three parts during this earthquake. But like I said earlier, not for destruction, but for improvement and preparation for the millennial kingdom. I can't wait to show you this stuff, folks. It's been there all along. This earthquake has been talked about all along. It's been in our Bibles. Anybody want to guess where we're going to turn? Zechariah chapter 14. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. But a whole lot more other places as well. Go to Zechariah 14. Of course, I didn't put a bookmark there, so you're probably waiting on me now. I'm going to read to you verses 4 and following. We've already read verses 1, 2, and 3 enough. We'll deal to verse 4. On that day, his feet, Jesus, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee. This is the people that are still left in Jerusalem, remember? And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. Isn't that interesting? There shall be a, it shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft 
on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses and it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a degree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Again, if you keep reading, we'll get to what we're going to deal with in Revelation 19 when we look at the return of Jesus in the battle of Armageddon and how he's going to defeat them. And it's going to be an amazing description when we get to that. So when this earthquake happens, remember, half of the Jews or one-third, uh, uh, the one-third that, that's protected, sorry, the one-sixth that's protected is going to be in Edom, but one-sixth one is going to be in Jerusalem. When this earthquake happens, the Mount of Olives is going to split in two, and a, and a valley is going to be formed, and north of the city of Jerusalem, it's going to go north. South of Jerusalem is going to go south, and the city, and especially the Temple Mount, is going to be raised up. Right now, in geography, the Temple Mount's not the highest point. But at this point, and from then on, it will be. Keep that in mind and go with me to Psalm 48. Psalm 48, verses 1 through 8. And by the way, remember that, that uh, river that it talked about flowing to the Dead Sea? If you go to Ezekiel 40, and we'll get to that again later in our study, folks, there is so much more that we're still going to have to look at when we finish to even come close to finishing our study of uh, Revelation. I can't wait to the millennial kingdom part and all that. There's going to be a, a river, the Bible says, that flows from the temple that just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's going to be so pure that it's going to turn the Dead Sea pure. That whole area is just going to flourish and it's going to also flow to the Mediterranean Sea. As we just read, it's going to flow in winter and in summer. Right now there's seasons and it's a dry period and there's a rainy season. There's not going to be any such thing. And the, gar the, 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 the area of Israel and, and that area of the world is going to turn into a beautiful garden. It's just going to be an amazing thing that God does uh, as he reshapes all the topography of the earth during the Millennial Kingdom. And in Psalm 48, look at verses 1 through 8. A song of a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in what? Elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. Within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled; they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as, anguish as a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Go to Psalm 125. Verses 1 and 2. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Did you catch that? As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. By the way, why is this called a song of ascents? You're going up. You sing it as you go up to Jerusalem to worship. This earthquake's going to level everything on the globe. Jerusalem will be raised up as above everything else. And Jesus himself is going to rule and reign from there. It's just going to be amazing. Go to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7.
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Did you catch it? What about all these mountains that are taller? What's going to happen to all them? They're going to be leveled. It'll be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, God, Jesus, shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make, him, make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them where? In Mount Zion. How long? From this time forth and forever more. Again, the prophecies have been there all along saying that this is all going to happen. Let me give you one more. Just turn a couple of books to the right. Go to Habakkuk. Chapter 3, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. I mean, stop real quick before we read any further and help you out a little bit. If you don't know where Mount Teman and Mount Paran are, does anybody have any idea where they are? They're where? Nope, not Jerusalem, not Babylon. Anybody know where the nation of Israel is going to be hiding? In Basra and Edom. And if I show you later on, you go to Isaiah 63, it says that he comes from Basra with his garments stained in blood. And these two mountains are where the nation of Israel is going to be hiding in Basra, in Edom. The Lord comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Do you not see now why, if you knew the Old Testament, when you read the book of Revelation, you'd go, this isn't new. But that's why it's so sad that most Christians read the book of Revelation and they go, that's just crazy talk. That's just bizarre. I don't understand it. It just It's apocalyptic literature. It doesn't make any sense. All I'm saying to you in love is, if you look at Revelation and say, that doesn't make any sense, you didn't read your Bibles. Well, you know why? Because we were taught that all this stuff was about Israel and we've replaced Israel. It's about us now. 
And most of the preaching you hear in your churches, as you look back over your childhood, if you grew up in the church, was all about the church and about us going to heaven and about us. They never told you about Israel and God's plan for the nations and God's work. Because of that, most of us never read a lot of the Old Testament. And then when we get to Revelation, we go, oh, that's a crazy book. And most pastors today don't even deal with it because it's too confusing. There's too much debate, too much argument. All I say to you in love is I hope that one of the things that comes out of this study is that you start to realize there's a lot of cool stuff in the Old Testament. And it's really going to help us understand where we are and what's going on. Let's just go look at it. i am be honest with you. I've never been so excited about the Old Testament because now, because of the years of study, as I read it, it's like ding, ding. It makes a ton of sense. And I thank God that he grafted me in because it really ain't about me. Oh, he loves Gentiles. But remember when we read back in Deuteronomy, he put all the nations where he wanted them. And he did that so we would reach out and find him. But he chose a special people for his own name. And because of their wickedness, we have been given wonderful gifts where he just gives us salvation by faith. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to go to sacrifices. We don't have to do all these things. He even puts his spirit within us, which they're going to get later on. We have been blessed like you wouldn't believe. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, don't think yourself better than them. Just thank God that he lets you be in and be a part of it. We also saw in this section that we just read in Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 and following, that God pours out the full cup of his fury of his wrath on Babylon. More in great detail next week. And also there are hailstones, 100 pounds each, fall on the people as a part of God's judgment on sin and wrath toward all who reject his offer to cover their sin through his blood. But there's something that I want to pull out from Revelation 16, 15 that ties with those two other passages that I told you that we we're going to close with tonight. Look at Revelation 16, 15. I don't know how many of you kind of caught it or just maybe even thought, that just seems weird and out of place. But in the midst of these bowls being poured out, in Revelation 16, 15, God says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Did anybody else kind of say, you know, that just seemed kind of out of left field? Well, I'm going to show you, it's not out of left field. And when you see what's going on here, it hopefully gets you kind of excited. All right, so remember also Revelation 11:19, where he saw into the temple and he saw the ark. And also in Revelation 15, 5 through 8, where he saw into the temple, the angels came out and then it got filled with smoke and nobody was allowed near the throne of God. In the midst of all this judgment and wrath, Jesus reveals to John the ark of the covenant and the holy of holies in the temple. Now, the ark is a reminder of God's presence with who? With Israel. What's his reminder of his presence with you and me? His indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't need the ark of the covenant. It's not for us. It was something that was given to the nation of Israel as a copy of the one that's in heaven. But it was a reminder of his presence. It was also the place of the mercy seat on top of it. The atonement, place of atonement, reminder of his atonement for them. And for also his covenant with his people. The promises that he made Israel that are going to be fulfilled. Is the fact that God let John see the ark in the temple for the church? No. That's something for the Jews at this point. 
When John writes that Jesus said in the context of the seventh trumpet, behold, I come like a thief, and he tells them to stay awake, he's reminding them of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. But I don't want you to turn there yet. Just keep that in mind. Because I want to show you a couple of things real quick that Jesus said himself. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. This is when the Canaanite woman, the Gentile woman who has a daughter who's got a demon, calls out to him and he ignores her. The disciple says she's driving us nuts. Look at what he says. He answered in verse 24 of Matthew 15. Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do you see it? Now, does he deal with this woman and help her? And meet a request, yes. Don't miss for a second in what I'm saying, that Jesus didn't care about the Gentiles. He did. He cared about the centurion and, and others. who. The, the, he, but remember, he had been sent by the Father to the Jews only. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the gospel of salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul had a heart to go to the Jews. He kept trying to go to the Jews. He kept going to the, the, ta I mean, sorry, the, the um, synagogue. Thank you very much. And, and he kept running into roadblocks and then he finally realized God had set him apart before he was born to preach to the Gentiles. Jesus said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Go with me to Matthew 10. Look at verses 5 and 6. When Jesus sends out his disciples two by two to go preach the good news of the kingdom, he says, then the 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, don't miss this. Did Jesus care about the Samaritans? Of course he did. How do we know this? John 4. He goes out of his way to meet with a woman in Samaria as they were going through Samaria to Galilee from Judea. And he shares the gospel. He's actually, that's the first person he ever told that he was the Messiah, was the woman at the well. And she then breaks, a revival breaks out in the town of the Samaritans. But when he sends his disciples, he says, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Why? Because Jesus had been given a responsibility and a role by the Father to preach to the Jews. Therefore, with that in mind, read with me now Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. And keep in mind, he's not talking to the church. He's only talking to Israel. And watch what happens. Starting in verse 36. Remember, he had, he had been asked about his return and the sign of the end of the age. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect. We have had that preached to us over the years as the rapture, haven't we? Who was Jesus talking to? 
the Jews. So when he said the, his return is going to be like a thief in the night, in Revelation 16, verse, 7, uh, verse 15, he says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief, reminding them of what he had already said here. And folks, let me help you a little bit more with this. People say, well, Jim, with all this stuff going on in the globe, um, how are people going to be buying and giving in marriage and all this kind of stuff? Let me, let me just point a couple of things out to you, first of all. Uh, right now, in our, in our nation, are we at war with some people? Are there battles going on? Are our military fighting battles? We're kind of oblivious to most of it, though, aren't we? Just because we see the kings of all the world coming to battle against Jesus in Jerusalem there and at the Battle of Armageddon doesn't mean that in other parts of the globe people won't be oblivious in a sense. At the same time, his return is all tied to the midpoint of the tribulation and following when he's begun to reign. And you just keep also in mind that it says, as it was in the days of Noah, one will be taken, one will be left. Let me ask you, in the days of Noah, who was taken, who was left? The righteous were left. The one taken was who? The wicked. And actually in the Greek here, when it says one will be taken, it's actually taken for judgment. So this is not the rapture. I grew up believing that because that's what I was told. Sounded like the rapture. But let me remind you of something Paul said to the church in Thessalonica. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, chapter Five, yeah, verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And we're going to be able to finish it. I think we're going to get there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything written to you. Now hang on for a second. If we were going to be in the tribulation period... Don't you think Paul would have been telling us to be watching for when the Antichrist steps into the temple? But we're not told to watch for the Antichrist. We're told to be watching for Jesus. Did you catch it? The church is told to be looking for Jesus because he's going to rapture us. We're not told to be watching for the Antichrist because we know full well that the return of Jesus in the second coming is after the Antichrist reveals himself. If the church weren't going to be raptured prior to that, we would be told to be watching for the Antichrist. Because then we'll know his return will be close. He goes, guys, I don't have to write to you about signs and dates. And you're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on who? Them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet and the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did you catch that? You remember what he said about the nation of Israel? I'm going to refine them. They're going to be put through the fire. We won't be put through the time of his wrath. You want further proof? Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verses 9 and 10. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us 
from the wrath to come. Again, if the church was going to be here on the earth during this time, we would be told to watch for the Antichrist. But we're not told to watch for the Antichrist. We're told to watch for Jesus. One last thing, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, verse 1, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, this is the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what's restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Who is the he that is restraining the revealing of the lawless one? The Holy Spirit. Now, listen. The Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the way in his role of restraining evil. The Holy Spirit is God. So he'll, he's ever, you can't say he's totally removed from the earth because God can't be totally removed from anything. But as he's taken out of the way... Well, let me just remind you of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15, uh, 5 and 6. The scripture says, Keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God, has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We believe that, don't we? Is he ever going to leave you? Then who has to go with him when he's taken out of the way? We have to go with him. Because he ain't leaving us. He'll never forsake us. And if he lives within us and the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out of the way so that the Antichrist can be revealed, guess who's going with him? So pray for Israel, folks. There's a lot of stuff still happening. And all this stuff that you're about to see in the Battle of Gog and Magog and the Battle of Armageddon all tied together and the destruction of Babylon and the return of Jesus, the stage is being set over there in Israel right now like you wouldn't believe. That means we are to be looking for Jesus who's going to come and get us and he's going to spare us from the wrath to come. We're not to be watching for the Antichrist. We're to be watching for Jesus. I love you. See you next week. Thanks for coming.